as promised, I can move this thing around as close to you guys as I want to. All right. Well, the book of Philippians. We are going to be getting into chapter 2 today. And when we started the introduction to Philippians, um, touched on the fact that Paul was really emphasizing our joy. This is called the book of joy. And specifically how it's you know, connected, that it really is connected to our mindset, how we think. And all throughout this book, he talks about our minds and being of one mind and um, just how our thoughts affect our joy and what they need to be focused on. So chapter one was all about having a single mind, right? Being single-minded in our focus um, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we wrapped up that singular focus last week uh, as Paul was writing to the believers about their conduct, their manner of life, how they were living it out, uh, and how we needed to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we got into some word study last week about that uh, word conduct and what that meant. And it spoke of living as a true citizen, as a true and worthy citizen. The city of Philippi was a Roman uh, city-state, and they were part of Rome, and so that was very important to them. Um, it was important that they lived as worthy citizens. One of the worst things you could do was to lose your citizenship as a Roman. And Paul was writing these guys, just saying, listen, you guys are part of a heavenly kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so we need to live in such a way that we don't bring dishonor to the king and the kingdom that we're about. It's not about a city. It's about a savior. Amen? Um, this isn't in my notes, but I wanted to talk on this uh, because it is something that everybody's talking about. And it is COVID and, you know, vaccines and masks and all that kind of stuff. And honestly, I'm tired of hearing about it. If you're like me, I'll be tired of hearing about it. So here's what I want to say about it. There is so much fear and anxiety and worry that's being spread all around. Okay, we've got more than enough to go around. And I work at a news station. That's all I hear all day long. So I just kind of put my earbuds in and kind of try to drown it out. But what I wanted to say is that since our citizenship is in heaven, since we need to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, we should be those that people can look to, look at in the middle of all of this chaos and say, why aren't you worried? Why aren't you concerned? Why aren't you anxious? We can tell them, listen, it's not because, you know, that this thing isn't real. It's just because that my citizenship is in heaven. I'm part of a bigger kingdom. All said for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am not worried about what's going to happen to me. I'm not giving a commentary on what you should or shouldn't do. I'm simply saying that we should look different than the world. And so in the middle of this whole thing, it really is an opportunity for the church to really be the church, to be God's representatives here on earth and live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Does that make sense? I just wanted to encourage everybody with that today. So how in the world do we do that? Um, just recapping last week, we had those four characteristics of a believer that are living in a worthy manner. And the first one was to stand firm, uh, be immovable in our faith, locking arms um, with each other in spite of difficulties and obstacles. And that really spoke of uh, the imagery of a soldier, a soldier who's going to stand firm, who's not going to give his ground, even if it costs him his life. And again, we as Christians, we need to be immovable in our faith, no matter what difficulties or obstacles are happening, um, even if it means giving our life, even if it means losing face in front of those that we have to see every single day. It doesn't matter because we are part of something that is so much bigger than we could ever be, no matter the cost. And so we're to be unified. We're to be of one mind. We're going to be talking about this a lot again today. I named this one Unity. I could have named it a lot of different things, but the overall uh, kind of feel that I got from this section was as believers, we need to be unified. We need to be of one mind. Um, we stand firm. 
Uh, we're to be unified, and we're supposed to be striving together. Um, we, the, the word there was soon atleo, and soon means together, and atleo means athletic, and so it's like a team sport. This is an athletic contest. You and I are part of this thing. We're supposed to be striving together, striving for the Lord and striving against the devil, uh, encouraging each other in good works, and then also sharpening one another, right? As iron sharpens iron, so that we can be a part of the battle, because we know that the battle's coming. And that leads us to our last one, which was suffering. That's kind of the one we ended on last week. That was a big one. We ended on suffering. Um, and while we don't really face persecution here in America, everybody has gone through something, some kind of suffering. Um, and that is true. You look at people and you look at their lives and sometimes, you know, we have one impression of how things are going or what it looks like on the outside. But the reality is that most of us have something going on on the inside. Um, and that's one of the things that I mentioned about, you know, be praying for one another. Um, today is actually kind of an interesting day. Today is August 15th. Um, it's our son Levi's birthday. Uh, a lot of you know our story. So uh, today's, you know, we're thinking about him a lot. Um, but what I would say, um, you know, in living in part of a broken world, you know that life is easier when we lock arms, when we bear each other's burdens, when we strive together, that that is what we need, that's what we're called to. We're called to community. We need to be with believers that are moving in the same direction because we all have the same destination, right? So bring each other along as we're striving together. Um, that was the case for us. And we're to live in community. One of the things that I did yesterday is I created a community page. I invited some of you um, to be a part of it, but um, I created a community page on Facebook. You can go to our Facebook page and probably join it uh, or request to join it so that we can put things out there so that we can be praying for one another. You can post updates, you can post prayer requests, praises, whatever. Um, and I called it, just so you can look for it, it's called the uh, Bethany Fellowship Family, or the BFF. <laughs> I came so close, guys. I came so close to calling the church Bethany Family Fellowship because I wanted it to be BFF. And Alicia said, you cannot name it that. We are not doing BFF. So I snuck it in, in the community page. So look for that. And then we can, you know, again, we can help pray for each other. People are going through stuff. The more people that are praying, the more comfort that we're going to be sending their way, the more the Holy Spirit can work in our lives and the lives of the people that we're praying for. Uh, but suffering shouldn't surprise us. We've been warned ahead of time that suffering's come, that it's coming. And Paul told us that both faith and suffering are gifts from the Lord. You know, faith is a gift from the Lord so that we cannot boast. It's not of ourselves so that we don't boast. It's a gift from the Lord. We don't always think of suffering as a gift from the Lord, but it is because it keeps us close to him. And it says that that is also one of the ways that God marks his children. We suffer, but it is also um, those that get marked in the world, his enemies. And the fact that we don't fear our opponents, we're not scared of them, is proof of our salvation, but also proof of their destruction is what he said. So um, Psalms 118.6 says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right. So even though there may be suffering, even though there may be things in our life that are difficult, we have each other, we're going to go through suffering, it is one of the proofs of our salvation. We're going to walk together, and the Lord is going to protect us. What can man do to me? So we're going to end on that note last week. And while we recognize that while there is difficulty here, because we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we know that it's better higher up. We ended on that story last week. It's better higher up. The imperative is to remind ourselves all the time that we're part of a heavenly kingdom and it's better higher up. Because here's the thing. For the believer, this is as bad as it gets. 
This life right now is as bad as it gets. It's only getting better from here. But for the people in the world, the people that are non-believers, this is as good as it gets. Like, can you imagine? It's the reason why people are so freaked out by the pandemic, because they think, listen, if this is as good as it gets, it ain't very good right now. And I'm starting to freak out. I don't know if I'm going to make it or my loved ones are going to make it. And so we need to be those that remind each other and remind ourselves we're part of something bigger. We're you know, believers in a heavenly kingdom. That's where our citizenship lies. Okay, our portion of scripture today is Philippians. We're going to start chapter 2. The example of Christ's humility. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do not do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And I almost kind of continued this, but if I get into the next section, it's going to be way too much. And as usually happens when I get to it, I have way too much to say. So next week is kind of, um, you know, a gold mine, if you will. So we talk about Jesus and how he emptied himself and how he became one of us. And so I save that for next week. Um, but chapter one was all about having a single mind, being single minded. Chapter two is about having a submitted mind, a mind that's submitted to Jesus, to his will, because he was submitted to his father. I missed the opportunity, I think, to say it last week, but I'm going to say it again this week and hopefully every week because it's a truth that can really set us free. If we think that we need to change our minds so that God can change our hearts, right? God will change our hearts, but we have to change our mind. Um, that's where we need to live. You can't change your heart, but we can't change our minds. For the people that may have a problem uh, loving other people, we go through seasons where we just really don't like people, we don't want to be around other people. Um, but if we have trouble forgiving people as well, we say that that is a heart issue. That person has a heart issue, but it really starts in our minds. God said, you know, love one another. He didn't say, love that person if they love you back, right? Don't forgive that person unless they forgive you back. It's not what he said. It is a decision. Um, it is a mindset that we need to have. We need to have the mind of Christ. And what Paul wants to drive home in this section is the example that Jesus set as he submitted to his father in humility. You have to think of it. What in the world did the angels think when the creator of the universe, their creator, was down in a manger in Bethlehem? Right? They're looking at him. He came to earth. He set aside his divine powers, came to earth, and they're seeing him there. And they must have thought that this spectacle, this spectacle was incomprehensible. And then they watched the days and the years as they, you know, as they unfolded. And they watched him in the wilderness as he's out there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's being tempted by the devil. And it's so exhausting for him that angels are sent to minister to him. And then news comes that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying so hard that his, the capillaries in his forehead start to burst. And he starts to actually sweat drops of blood. And he's praying so intensely that angels again are sent to minister to him. And then word comes that he's dying. He's bleeding on a cross at Golgotha. Surely this has to be as bad as it gets. Surely this has to be as low as it can go. But then we find out that God the Father actually has to turn his back on his son. Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually had to turn his back on Jesus. And the man, the, you know, the God that wants to wipe away every tear from our eyes had to turn his back on his son. And the angels had to be thinking, 
when will this end? How low does he have to go? When is this going to be over? Jesus' example of humility is what we need to, you know, we need to exemplify in our daily lives. Keep on loving. Keep on sacrificing. Keep on following the leading of the Holy Spirit. How low do we have to go? You just have to follow Jesus' example. Amen? His whole life was one big, you know, trial, trial down. He stepped down from heaven. He went to the manger. He went to the cross. And then he went down and defeated hell, death, and the grave. He came up with the keys. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you and I right now. But he had to go all the way down. He knew his purpose, that he came to serve, not to be served. Okay, so verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, it kind of sounds like Paul is starting off with a question when he says, if, if there is any, but it's rhetorical, obviously. And so you really could substitute the word since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there's comfort and love, since there's participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. Um, it would be like one of my kids coming up and asking, you know, you, do you even care about me? Like, you made that decision. Do you even care? And then I would respond by saying, aren't I your father? Like, didn't I change a thousand diapers? Didn't I walk the halls with you when you were crying as a baby? Didn't I have to buy a new mattress because you slept in it for four years? <laughs> yes. I do care for you. That's the reason why I made that decision. That's the reason why you can't have, you know, cotton candy at 11 o'clock at night. So... <laughs> Since we have encouragement, the word here is parakaleo, that is the Greek word um, that literally means to call alongside or to come alongside is what that word means. And it means to comfort or to exhort or to, cons you know, to console. It's a really intimate term. Um, I can parakaleo when I see somebody else suffering, when I see somebody else hurting. And it really makes me think of the story of the Good Samaritan, um, the man who was beaten half to death and he's sitting there on the side of the road and here come the Levites, right? And the priest, and they walk by on the other side. They have no compassion. They have no consolation for this guy. The only thing they care about was their purity. They didn't want to become defiled. And so the Good Samaritan comes along, literally called alongside of him, picks him up, cleans his wounds, takes him to the inn, brings him to the church, if you will, so that we can take care of him until he comes back. Um, we can also parakaleo to God when we call out to him, when we need him to be near, when we need his presence, when we want to feel the Holy Spirit in our lives because we're walking through a trial, we can call out to him. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul describes this encouragement as a chain reaction, that God comforts us in our affliction so that we can cover, cover others, comfort others in their affliction with the comfort that we would have been given. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> God comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort others as they're going through their stuff, the comfort that we've been given. We love because he loved us first. Amen? Since we have comfort from love, basically we have, this is the same thought, we have consolation. Uh, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. His love towards us as unworthy sinners should compel us to in turn love each other, do everything we can to maintain unity. Unity in the church, unity in our relationships, um, unity in our family because of his love for us. All of these things that Jesus did for us, we need to do in return to keep unity in the body. Um, I mentioned last week, 
Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And the whole thing that, God, that Jesus is praying is that God would make us one as he and the Father were one. And you know what the answer to that prayer was? The answer to Jesus' prayer was the Holy Spirit. He was sending the helper that was going to fill you and I. That was the only way that you and I could be one and be in agreement with believers all around the world is through the Holy Spirit binding us together that we are pushing our own agendas out of the way and we are lifting him high together. Um, we're not going to be prideful. We're going to step forward in humility and love. We're going to count others as better than ourselves. Um, the church in Corinth specifically was a mess. Um, Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth because they were a mess. And he was addressing multiple things, but one of them was divisions in the church. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Satan hates unity. He can't stand it. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what the devil comes to do. Um, and since that's the case... In our humanity, he uses the things against us, sometimes that we're so passionate about. Um, sometimes it's, you know, interpretation. Sometimes it's preferences. You know, what kind of music do we like? Should we have, you know, drums up here now? Um, you know, should we focus on discipleship? Should we focus on missions? All of these things that we can be so passionate about, the enemy can use against each other. And so we start colliding against each other inside the church to disrupt our unity. These are all good things. But we have to be careful that we are relating to each other in a loving way and that we are um, maintaining unity in the body. Um, there's a saying, I'm not exactly sure uh, who it's attributed to, but it's talking about our beliefs. And it says this, that in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Right? So what are the essentials? The essentials, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead of the Trinity. He came to earth fully man, fully God. He died for our sins on the cross. His blood washes away all of our sins. We are clothed in his righteousness. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Those are the essentials. There has to be unity in those if we are going to, um, if we're going to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In non-essentials, again, you know, not should we be vegetarians? You know, should we eat meat? How should we worship? You know, what you know, translation of the Bible should we use? There needs to be liberty. There's lots of different expressions in how people um, live out, you know, this faith. And then in all things charity, we need to be gracious with each other all the way around. So we and avoid major, you know, dis divisions in the church. We need to major on the majors and not give the enemy room to come in and disrupt. Um, you know, if we are walking in the Holy Spirit, if the fruits of the Spirit are active in our lives, then that is going to be what bonds us together. He says, in the bonds of peace. Preserve unity in the bonds of peace. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, or comforting one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're supposed to be doing when we're walking in the Spirit, comfort each other in love. Here's an analogy that I thought was helpful. Um, when our kids were little, they went to a place called Moon Marble Company. I don't know if you guys have heard of Moon Marble, but our kids went there when they were little, and they make marbles, and it's kind of a fun, you know, day trip for the kids. And they came home with all these little, you know, 
vacuum killers is what I call them, you know, all these little marbles. And, you know, they came in this tube and we would pour them out and, you know, we would play marbles on the floor and they would get lost and then the vacuum would find them. Um, but they were held together by a container, right? All of these marbles were held together by an outside force. Um, and then when they was open, when the container was open, they went everywhere. They just spread all over the place. But you and I are held together by an internal force. I thought of it more as like a magnet, right? A magnet over metal shavings. Uh, there is a magnetic force that attracts us to Jesus, and that is the Holy Spirit. Um, we are all to be pulled together through the Holy Spirit. Um, what's inside of you and me uh, is what people in the world need to see right now. They don't need to see us doing things in our own strength. They don't need to see us striving in our own strength. They need to see the spirit of peace moving through the Christian you know, family, through the church, and say, man, you guys are different. What do you guys have inside you that I need in my life? All right, next point. Since we have participation in the spirit, you've probably heard the Greek word koinonia. And you might hear that word in regards to small groups, and I call them koinonia groups because it literally means fellowship. Um, people that we're doing life with, people that we're locking arms with, um, there's a mutual partnership spiritually. You and I are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, dwelling inside of us, convicting us, leading us, comforting us. He helped us in our weaknesses because there are times when we don't even know how to pray. And so we link arms with other believers, participation in the Spirit. And when we do that, when we participate in the Spirit together, um, we can have peace. And that is the peace that you know passes all understanding. And Jesus said, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, this is part of striving together, participating in the Spirit, striving together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that we have all been made to drink of the same Spirit. Koinonia, doing life together. And then next, since we have affection and sympathy, the idea here for affection and sympathy is a deep emotional reaction. Metaphorically, we would say that this is something that we can feel in our guts. Um, really, it's compassion for other people is what it boils down to. Jesus had this type of emotional characteristic in his life when he was here on earth towards other people. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus is looking over this huge crowd of people, and it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And at the beginning of this book, in verse 8, Paul said, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. So we need to have compassion on other people. We need to have sympathy, and we need to have affection for one another in Christ Jesus. The compassion of Jesus and the godly affection that we have towards each other should lead us in compassion towards other people. It should cause us to look outward, not to get lost inward. So we have encouragement, we have comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy. And Paul says, complete my joy, because you guys have received these things in your life. In turn, turn around and do these with each other and to others that you come in contact with. Complete my joy when you guys have the same love for each other that Jesus does for you. We need to be unified. So those are the four ifs that start off chapter two. Uh, pursuing unity since these things have been given to us from Jesus. Uh, failing to move forward in unity uh, only serves to weaken the body. It weakens the church. It weakens our witness. Um, and really, if you think about it, it's, it's really the, the greatest form of ingratitude that we can have towards the Lord is to just, you know, disobey, to disregard his commandments um, and be indifferent. I was listening to a song one day 
uh, by Mumford & Sons, and I couldn't you know, locate the song, but in one of the verses I heard it, and it just kind of hit me between the eyes. It said, the opposite of love is indifference. If you ask a lot of people, you say, what is the opposite of love? Most people would say hate, right? The opposite of love is hate. Well, if you think about it, the opposite of love is really just indifference, not caring one way or the other what happens to somebody, and not caring one way or the other what God's commands say to be indifferent um, really is one of the worst things that we can do. Um, the opposite of love is indifference. To say, I don't care, that hardness of heart. A tender heart loves, but a hard heart is indifferent. And Paul's telling the church, he said, listen, since you have been given all of these things, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Don't be indifferent towards each other. Okay, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. When we don't have the fruit of the Spirit you know, flowing through our lives, we start to strive on our own power, um, that can lead to a lot of selfishness and pride, even in the church. Um, we, last week we talked about striving together and how it's kind of like a team sport, um, but there aren't supposed to be any ball hogs in the church, right, in the body of Christ. Um, there's no room for, you know, competition in the body of Christ. There's an incredible account in John 5, um, you, you, a lot of you have heard it, where Jesus enters Jerusalem um, on the Sabbath, and it's during a feast, and he walks in and he goes to the pool of Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy. That's what Bethesda means. He goes to the pool and it says that there were, you know, sick and invalid people all over the place. They had these covered porches and people were laying all over the place. And they had the belief that when the pool was stirred, that an angel stirred the waters. And when it did, the first person that could get in was going to be healed. And so it was a mad rush to get in anytime somebody thought that the water was stirred. And they do an episode of this in The Chosen. If you've seen it, it really is incredible the way that they portray this. And I know The Chosen isn't the Bible, and they take some creative liberties with how they do this. But what they're trying to do is put skin on these situations so that you can see the impact that Jesus had and what he was doing. And John tells us there was a man there that had been there for decades. 38 years he had been laying. He had just been laying there this whole time. He hadn't been able to get to the pool. He was so lame, and when it would happen, and people would start to, you know, make a mad dash to the pool, he would start crawling, but he said somebody else always got down in front of him, and Jesus walks out up to this guy, and he says, do you want to be healed? Now, sometimes I get upset with rhetorical questions. I don't like them all that much, and I have to think that when Jesus asked him that question, he would have been like, who is this guy? What kind of stupid question is that? Do I want to be healed? Of course, I'm sitting here. I've sat here for decades trying to be healed. But there's something about Jesus. There's something in his eyes. It's that compassion that we just mentioned. And he talks to this guy. He says, listen, um, let's get out of here. Right? Pick up your mat and let's leave this place of competition. This place where everybody is pushing each other aside. Here in the house of mercy, people are shoving each other and they're working out of their own selfish ambition and conceit. There is competition in this place and it's not good. Um, they just do a really good job of picturing what this would have looked like of people literally climbing over one another and pushing one another uh, so that they could obtain a blessing. And how does this, you know, apply to us in the church? We just need to make sure that as a body that we are not stepping on each other, stepping over each other, shoving each other out of the way so that we can get some kind of recognition, so that we can get to come some kind of special blessing. We need to be those that are being a blessing to other people. And so he says, let's get out of here, pick up your mat. And so he heals the guy, and the people that got ticked off 
were the Pharisees, right? The religious guys of the day, the guys that were the most competitive in that day in keeping the rules and wanting to be the most, um, the most devout. These were the people that got ticked off because he was simply carrying his mat. And of course they got ticked off at Jesus because he was the one that did the miracle that day. The church is to be a house of mercy. It's the place where um, the hurting come to get healed. It's supposed to be a hospital for the hurting. It's not a place to get ahead. And you know where Jesus ran into him next? He ran into him at the temple. So right after he was healed, he went to the temple to worship. And when people come here to the church, to the house of mercy, and they get healed, it's going to compel them and the rest of us to worship, to enter in. It was because of what Jesus is doing in our lives. So let's make sure that we're not stepping over or stepping on our brothers and sisters, but we're actually carrying them into the presence of the Lord. We need to be a blessing to those around us. There actually is one place where Paul says it's okay to be competitive, and it's actually in Romans 12.10. And he says this, he's talking about the marks of a true Christian. And he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So that is actually one thing that we competitive, you know, could be competitive in. So if you guys want to be competitive, you can outdo one another in showing honor to each other. That kind of competition is going to bring about unity in the body. All right. In humility, count each other more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, humility is kind of in short supply these days. Uh, you look around and you don't see a lot of humility. You see somebody that's walking that way and everybody makes a big deal out of it, but nobody wants to actually walk it out in real life. Um, Jesus gives us a biographical description of himself. He doesn't do this, really. He does in uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine, And the word here for, you, for humility is lowly. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Um, you, may, you may have heard that phrase that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often, right? That that's what true humility is. Um, I heard this story on humility um, and how, you know, not striving in our own strength, not being selfish, but walking in humility. And there was this young assistant pastor, and the head pastor was going to be gone, and so he had an opportunity to teach, and he had been waiting for his chance to get up and preach in front of everybody. And so it had one of those pulpits that was way high up with lots of stairs. And he goes bounding up to the pulpit, so it's his time to preach, and he's very excited. And he gets up there, and it just doesn't go well. He is stumbling over himself, and he is sweating, and he can't remember his notes. And so after his sermon, he kind of walks down sheepishly, you know, down to the pew. And there's a couple of old guys in the back, and... One says to the other, he says, you know, if he would have gone up the way he came down, he might have came down the way he went up. He was very excited for himself to be able to get up there and prove himself, and he wasn't walking in humility. So we need to humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Amen? Um, you know, Jesus walking this out uh, in just such an incredible way, people wanted to make Jesus king. Now, he was king. He is king. But people wanted to take him and make him king there. And when that happened, when he could see that was about to happen, he would often slip away and get away from the, you know, draw away to a desolate place. Um, I ran into the story of a man named John Carnes, and he was the principal of a Presbyterian Divinity Hall in Edinburgh over in Scotland. And in his day, he was very well known by the educational, uh, you know, society and all throughout the world. And he would never enter a room 
before somebody else. He would always step out of the way, regardless of who it was, and say, you first, I'll follow. And once he was with a group of people, and they were all going up on a stage, and there were a bunch of seats up there, and they were going up to take their seats. And as they were coming up the stairs, the crowd recognized him, and they all started to you know, applaud. They all started to kind of stand up and applaud. And he was so shocked that the people were doing this, he, he didn't think that this could be for him, so he turned around and he motioned for the guy behind him to go up, and he started clapping for the guy behind him because he didn't think that these cheers could have been for him. Um, and that's not false humility. He was literally deferring to the other person. And um, deferring to the other person is really what we're talking about in terms of valuing other people more than ourselves and considering other people more than ourselves. Um, in Luke 14, Jesus is invited to a meal at a Pharisee's house. And as he's standing there, he's watching people, you know, kind of jockey for position and looking for places to sit. And back then, when they would host a meal, it would be kind of the tables were set up in a U-shape. And so the host would sit at the head of the table, and then the seats would go all the way around. And the closer you were to the host kind of said how important you were, right? The closer you got to sit. And so he's watching these guys, these Pharisees, kind of jockey around and see where they can sit. And Jesus sits down, and um, he starts to tell a parable. And he uses a wedding feast as an example. He says, look, when you go to a wedding feast, don't pick the seats of honor. Because what might happen is somebody more important than you might come along, and then he's going to get up and he's going to ask you to move down and you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be humbled in the sight of everybody else. What you need to do is take a more humble, take a lower position, and then the host can go to you and say, hey, friend, come up here. Come up closer to me. And then you'll be honored. And he says this right after everybody's sitting there trying to jockey for position. I think it's kind of funny. Um, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The ultimate example of this, obviously, is Jesus. We're going to talk about this next week, how he walked in humility to the will of his Father. Uh, he knew why he was here. He knew why he was here to serve. And he tells you and I the same thing. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. You have to assume the position of a servant. You have to be willing to be laid low. Um, I once read that a true, you know, a true um, test of whether or not we view ourselves as servants is when we get treated like one. When we get treated like a servant, because servants in that day weren't even seen. They had no rights. There's a story of, um, I just remember there was a story of a servant um, and a master, and he was bringing food to the table, and he tripped, and he you know, spilled everything over the table, and they did not even think of servants as people back then. They thought so little of them that he took him outside and threw him into this pond that he had there on his property that was full of like all of these, you know, fish and worms and things like that that were going to eat him up. Um, that's how little they thought of slaves and servants in that day. But you and I are to be those. It doesn't matter what happens. That doesn't matter if we get any kind of recognition. We're there to take the low place so that he will honor us. Okay, we need to have a correct view of ourselves if we're going to walk in humility. Um, in Psalms 138, 4-6, we read that all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God knows the humble, but that those that are prideful, those who are proud, they're not close to the Lord. He just knows them from afar. Uh, because the closer we get to the Lord, the more accurately we see ourselves. Sinners, all of us, in need of a Savior. I was 
um, I was on a commercial production shoot one day and we were making a commercial for one of our clients and as the production guys got there, they were setting up and the lighting was really terrible in the place that we were shooting. And so the guy who had the camera handed me this white piece of foam board and he said, go stand over there. And since I was just standing in the way anyway, um, I went over in the corner and I held this white piece of foam board. And I asked him what he was doing and he said he had to focus in on the white board. He had to get a white balance because if he didn't do that, none of the other colors were gonna match up. And so once he got the white balance dialed in, everything else would come into focus, you see. And that's the way it is with our Lord. The closer we get to the Lord, the closer we get to his light, the more accurately we will see ourselves and then everything will come into focus. We'll see ourselves rightly. Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. The longer he walked with the Lord, the more accurate view of himself he had. He started off by saying he was the least of the apostles. He's like, listen, I'm just the least of the apostles. And then later on, he said, I'm the least of the saints. And then towards the end, he would say, listen, I'm just the cheapest of sinners, guys. I'm the worst. He had the most accurate view of himself. Um, proud people don't see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as better than other people. They don't really think of themselves as sinners. Um, pride, obviously, is the original sin. This is why I got Satan kicked out of heaven. Um, a lot of people, a lot of Bible scholars, based on some of the things that are in the Bible, um, have said that Satan was actually the worship leader in heaven, that he was the one that was leading people in worship. And at some point he decided, I'm worthy of worship. Like, I'm the one that needs to be elevated. I, he put himself on the same level as God, and that got him obviously kicked out. First uh, Peter 5.5 5 said that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want grace, then you need to humble yourself. Um, there was a neat idea that somebody had once, and they had um, a doorway in their house and uh, they made it smaller than all the other ones, and you had to actually bend down. You had to, you know, bend down to get through it, and it had a verse about humility over it and having to, you know, lower ourselves if we want to get through. Um, there was a story uh, that we have in John 8, and Jesus, on the Sabbath, goes to the temple, as was his custom, and people start to gather around him, and so he starts to teach. And as he's teaching, the Pharisees interrupt, they barge in, and they bring this woman to him, and they throw this woman down in front of Jesus, and they say this, they say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And the whole thing was a setup, right? They were trying to set up Jesus. They were trying to catch him in his words. What would he actually say? This rabbi of mercy and grace. Now the law actually said that the man and the woman were supposed to be stoned. Not just the woman, the man too. But the man wasn't there. Um, but they wanted to test Jesus, these people that were holier than thou. And it tells us that while they were making these accusations, Jesus bent down and he started writing in the dirt with his finger. And they're hurling all of these things at him. And Jesus stands up, and you guys know the line. He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down again and he's writing in the dirt. And it tells us that starting with the oldest, all the way down to the youngest, they start to walk away. They drop the rocks and they started to walk away. And some Bible scholars have speculated, and I think they might be right, that what Jesus was writing in the dirt was their sins. That's an interesting speculation. That they see what Jesus is writing in the dirt, they recognize some of their sins, and they drop their rocks, and they leave. Now, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't uh, challenge her guilt, but he was challenging these Pharisees who had this holier-than-thou, we're-not-guilty attitude. Um, he was giving them a more accurate view of themselves, if I can say that. 
um, the older is left first. Just like Paul, the older we get, the more we've walked with Jesus, the closer we get to him, the more we realize how much we need forgiveness and grace. We're very aware of our own shortcomings and our mistakes. We need to humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Count others more significant than yourself. A humble mindset can say that every person in here is better than me at something or in some way. Every person in here is better than me in something or in some way. Um, and when we look at people that way with the desire to learn, to look into them and how we can appreciate them, then we can be walking in humility. Don't look at other people's faults and where they fall short just to make yourself feel better. Right? Don't look at people that way. When we realize that the people that we encounter are better than us in some way, and that's what Paul's telling us, treat other people better than yourselves, esteem them more highly, then we can be walking in humility. Uh, verse four, last verse, um, and if somebody wants to go get the kids, they can. Um, let each of you look not only to his interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility is looking out for the interest of others and looking into people, not looking down on them. Um, it's easy for us to dismiss people if they're not treating us the way that we would like to be treated, but that's not what the scriptures say. It says, love one another, love people, even if they don't love you back. Forgive people. How much, how much should we forgive somebody? Seven times? Jesus said 70 times seven. Basically, meant there is no end. You need to humble yourself. You need to forgive. You need to walk in humility. You need to esteem others higher, higher than yourself. Um, I worked with a man. Um, yeah, the worst people come back up. I worked with a guy, um, and he bought a lot of advertising. And he was a pretty big deal. He bought a lot of advertising for a big car you know, a dealership here in Kansas City. And so everybody, because he spent a lot of money, everybody kind of catered to him. Um, or more, more accurately, I should say they put up with him. Because he was one of the angriest, meanest men that I had ever met. Um, and I don't know why they always gave me the hard cases. I don't know, maybe something. I have something with, with difficult people. Um, so I worked with him. I didn't like it. And one day he was just cussing at me up one side and down the other, which was not unusual. And at one time, I just had enough. That day I had enough. And I said, listen, if this is the way that you're going to continue to treat me, I don't have to work with you anymore. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> and about five minutes later, my boss came running down the hall to my desk. And he's like, what in the world is going on? And I kind of explained to him what was going on. And he was like, ah. He's like, I know. How he is, he's like, we have to work with him. I'm like, well, it's going to be different if we're going to work with him. And so I called him back, and we had a conversation, and um, it got better after that. But not too long after that is when we got our diagnosis, when Levi was diagnosed. And I know I told you guys this. We moved to Memphis, and the company that we worked for owned the newspaper, and they let us all move down there as a family, and I got to work. Um, and the interesting thing I found out, I was talking to one of my other bosses that knew him very well, that had known him for a long time. He said, Nathan. Let me tell you something. He said, here's the reason why he's so angry, why he's so bitter. He said, him and his wife had a special needs daughter, and she couldn't take it anymore, and she took off. She left him with this special needs daughter. He has raised her, you know, time she was born, and she's an adult now. She's an adult child, and she needs constant care. And he said, he's a bitter, angry man, and he takes it out on everybody else. And at that point, I saw into him. I could see into him. Right? That opened up a door. And so when we were down there, he actually was one of the few people, the people that I worked with, that reached out to me to see how I was doing. He had sympathy and affection because he had seen into my life and I had seen into his life. And we kind of formed this weird 
bond with each other. And I got to share with him the reason for the hope that was inside of me, which was a really cool thing. Um, there's a song by a group called Need to Breathe. Uh, I like those guys a lot. And they have a song called um, Difference Maker. <laughs> I am a difference maker. And the reason we walk in humility, the reason why we walk in the spirit and we carry each other's burdens um, and we show affection and sympathy is because we are to be those that are difference makers wherever we go. If we look into people and not down on them, we can be difference makers. So when you go back home today, when you go back to your family, when you go back into the workplace, just every person you meet, just look at them as if they are better than you at something or in some way. Walk in humility, desire to look into them, not down on them, and be a difference maker. Seek to maintain unity, to unity, to be selfless, to be humble, to be those people that can walk into a room and be a difference maker because of the light that's inside us. Amen.